Today's talk is entitled Escape and Evasion on the Run in Occupied Europe. Time restraints will mean not, we'll not be able to deal with Italy or the Far East, but there's a huge amount of material here on both theatres of war. You may recognise the first slide there. That's the sort of famous or infamous Colditz Castle, or off leg 4C, as it's sort of known in official terminology. Believed by the Germans to be virtually escape-proof, but as you will hear later, there were numerous attempts and there were quite a few actual successful escapes from, it, from the building itself. During the Second World War, most uh, servicemen taken prisoner by the Axis powers, i.e. Germany and Italy, were not liberated until April to May 1945. In contrast, a small number made a home run. Now, a home run is considered by most people to be an escape from within a camp or within a camp compound, not from outside a camp. Uh, hundreds more actually escaped, and it would have been escaped from captivity when they were perhaps picked up, escaped from the um, local police or on the line of march or in some other form. But thousands more actually evaded capture. The vast majority of those would be airmen who were shot down in um, Allied you know, shot down in um, Germany and um, helped on their way, usually by civilian-run escape organisations to get back home to the United Kingdom. It's these men, the organisations that were established to assist them, the civilian-run escape lines that helped them to return to the United Kingdom that I'll focus on today. This year, as you probably know, uh, marks the 70th anniversary of Dunkirk, 1940. <coughs> And in fact, it was, in, it was um, during June 1940 that the first large batch of British POWs were taken. We hear quite a lot about the over 300,000 or so that returned to this country, but very little about the 40,000 who were actually taken prisoner. Most of these men uh, spent the rest of their war in captivity. Captivity for most of these men meant um, marching and a combination of marching, train, barge and other forms of transport to Poland where most of the men captured at Dunkirk were uh, sent to. And you can imagine sending them to Poland, sent them so far away from the front line, if you imagine where Dunkirk is in Germany and Poland, these were effectively out of the war. In contrast, uh, many officers landed up in a place called Laufen in the Bishop's Palace, uh, slightly better accommodation, and that's actually in Austria. The one point to make, though, is of the um, numbers that were either returned to this country or were taken into captivity, about another 2,000 were on the run, and of those, about 1,000 made it back to this country. Um, they remained at liberty, some of them even remained at liberty until the Allied invasion hiding out throughout parts of France. Those that made it back to this country, many of them uh, made their way through what became Vichy France down towards the south and returned, um, returned that way. Um, if they were captured by the Vichy uh, government at that time, which was in its embryonic stage, I think the Vichy was really only established in about July 1940, most of them landed up in a series of forts in the Marseille area from where some escaped, but the majority were then transported to POW camps in Germany. There is a difference in the title, the difference between an escaper and an evader, and it's very 
uh, important to their status. The Geneva Convention classifies escapers as those who escape from enemy hands, even if they were only held captive for a few hours. Evaders were those who had not been captured by enemy forces. This important distinction meant that while escapers could be repatriated should they make it to a neutral country such as Switzerland, Spain or Sweden, evaders were liable to be interned for the duration. Consequently, during training, servicemen were instructed to claim to be escapers even if they were evaders. It then put them in a situation where if it was possible, they could then be evacuated home to this country. One of the ironic things is, of course, lots of people made it to Switzerland, and um, Switzerland was surrounded by enemy-occupied territory uh, for most of the war, and an air evacuation corridor was not feasible until about October 1944. Several organisations were established to assist prisoners of war in enemy hands. Um, the first one was called MI9, is Military Intelligence Line 9. This was established in December 1939 and it was headed by Major Norman Richard Crockett and Jimmy Langley. Their primary objective was to contact and help POWs to escape and along with evaders to get them back to England. The principal objectives of MI9 were to facilitate escapes of British prisoners of war with the purpose of getting back service personnel and containing additional enemy manpower on guard duties and search parties, to facilitate the return to the United Kingdom of those who succeeded in evading capture in enemy-occupied territory, to collect and distribute information, to assist in the denial of information to the enemy, to maintain the morale of British POWs in enemy prison camps. MI9 was originally located in room 424 in the Metropole Hotel in North London Avenue, London. But in September 1940, it was transferred to Wilton Park, a country house near Beaconsfield, and given the cover name Camp 020 or Camp 20. From Beaconsfield, it was under an hour by train into Maribyrn Station and the Great Central Hotel opposite. This is a photograph of the Great Central Hotel. It's now the landmark hotel, a five-star hotel in Maribyrn Road. The requisitioned hotel was the home of an organisation called the London District Transit Camp, where many returning escapers and evaders were interrogated. I believe, it's believed that they had somewhere near the first floor of this actual building. MI9 did have a presence um, in other parts of the world. In the Mediterranean theatre, it was known as A-Force, and in the Far East as E-Group. But I don't really have time, obviously, to go into details about their work. To assist MI9, in January 1942, this is MI9's headquarters at Wilton Park, which ironically, at the end of the war, some 4,000 German volunteer prisoners of war attended re-education courses, almost, I suppose, a form of denazification course. I believe this is now a conference centre. But to assist MI9, in January 1942, Intelligence School Number 9, known as IS9, was created at Highgate in London. Among its functions was to train officers in the intricacies of escape and evasion and to enable them to disseminate this knowledge to their men. Lectures included how to deport yourself in France, for example, who to approach, 
what in the hands of an escape writer, follow instructions to the letter, uh, not to start up conversations with unknown people, offer them cigarettes or chocolate. They also assured personnel that being in prison was not a disgrace, it was just another posting. And they were still on the active list and it was their duty to escape or at least make themselves as much of a nuisance as possible while in enemy hands. The building itself, um, unfortunately, is quite a part of the state now. This is up near Highgate. It's Athlone House and there's various developers trying to take it over and turn it into, I suppose, an expensive piece of property. But this was the original building. It's still so it's a bit of a shabby state at the moment, unfortunately. It was originally the home of the Royal Air Force Intelligence School, which had moved from Harrow. The building was originally called Cairnwood Towers and later renamed Athlone House. It's off Hampstead Lane, Highgate, North London. If anybody knows that area, it's towards the Highgate end of that particular road. To maintain its secrecy, it official lined that it was a convalescence hospital. One of the things about returning people home, and this is some of the it's quite a complex document. These are some of the subdivisions of them, IS-9, and the work they undertook. But it was important to get highly trained aircrew home, and, but in, and in purely monetary terms, it's estimated, in some works I've read, that a bomber pilot cost £10,000 to train and a fighter pilot £15,000 to train. Now, I looked at the National Archives currency and converter, and it shows that £10,000 in 1942 would be worth £287,000, £200 today. £287,200. So imagine each pilot cost that. And, um, you know, a fighter pilot, half as much again. So a very expensive commodity. It was essential to get them back. Um, one of the things about getting people back, of course, it was a huge morale booster. If someone from your squadron had gone missing, presumed killed, taken prisoner, didn't hear from them again, they suddenly appeared back at base at your squadron. You know, it, just, it gave you the, 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 the understanding that even if you were shot down, you could get back. It wasn't the end of your war necessarily. There was a lot of advice issued in May 1941 about avoiding capture in France. And there's a somewhat um, sort of stereotypical view of the French. It says, apart from trying to avoid German patrols, discarding your uniform, particularly your flying boots, because they're sort of a dead obvious giveaway, uh, there were flying boots which were adaptable. You took off, you could unzip the top bit and they turned into shoes. But, you know, going around with a great big pair of, of flying boots was obvious. But it also states, if you have any choice in the matter of clothing, try and get a beret and a pair of rope-soled shoes. Another useful disguise is to carry a pitchfork or rake. If you have a rucksack, carry it slung across one shoulder. As your disguise to, is to be that of a Frenchman, it would be as well to study and adopt local customs. For instance, don't whistle while on the road. Don't march, but slouch along. If you have a meal in a calf, don't be too fastidious in your manners. French people, after clearing their plates, leave their fork and knife thus. There's a diagram showing you how you leave your cutlery at right angles to the plate. To go unshaven is quite correct, but not on Sundays. This is a, a thing about how to deal with interrogation. Uh, it's a bit of a cartoon in one of the files here. Obviously, Hitler, Goering, probably Mussolini. Name, rank, number. You know, don't be intimidated. No matter what they say to you, give out only a limited amount of information. 
There were a certain amount of ruses were played on captured prisoners, particularly at a place called Dulag Luft, where most aircrew went through. There was a dummy Red Cross form people were asked to fill in. They basically said, well, if you fill in this form, we'll let your next of kin know everything's okay. And they soon got word, word soon got back that this was a dummy Red Cross form. And uh, people were warned in the training, don't fill out that form. Other means were um, solitary confinement, putting you in a cell um, where they had the heating controls outside. They could turn the heating up to make life a little bit uncomfortable. But this is in one of the MI9 documents here. I don't know who, who drew the uh, cartoon. So it'd be hidden out, you know, hidden microphones, alcohol, stool pigeons, etc. Red Cross form, name, rank, number is uh, all you need to give. And this is another one, which another cartoon, which reflects how you should deport yourself in France. Obviously, a chap with military bearing, military moustache, etc. Germans on the guard, slouch along like that, doesn't notice you. This is all part of the escape training in a sort of cartoon form. There's also a booklet in there, booklet in there, which says, "So you won't talk." And obviously, a German behind a British lion here is going to ignore him. And it gives you details about stall pigeons. You'll get a man-to-man -man talk. Well, old chap, we're in the war together. You know, let's, you know, the answer to everything is silence. And there's also the know-alls who knew, seems to know it more about your squadron than you do. So there's all sorts of ruses played by the Germans to elicit information. And particularly in RAF crew, it'd be useful to know about not only the squadron and its operations, but also any particular technical equipment that they were using at the time. Uh, this is another one of the cartoons at the MI9 file, and it shows you how to, how to inject, your, inject yourself here. And these ampules break it off, etc., etc. And it gives you, if you want to give yourself morphine, here are the way, this is the way to do it, and the, here are the times that you should be doing that sort of thing. In addition to being given training, particularly for aircrew, uh, maps and compasses could be concealed in uniform. And any aircrew members wishing to have this done should send his tunic to and as address Messrs. Glanfield and Son, Brick Lane, London E1. Together with a label attached to the garment giving the rank, name and address of the owner, and marked on the reverse side with the word monkey. Why monkey, I really don't know. The tunic would then be returned to the sender with maps, etc., sewed into the tunic itself within 24 hours. There was no charge uh, made on this one apart from the return postage. Uh, a third organisation was formed, and as the plan for the invasion of Europe, D-Day, commenced in 1943, it was realised that a new section would, would be required to meet the changing circumstances of the reoccupation of France. This branch is known as IS-9, Intelligence School 9, WEA, Western European Area. And was, it was established to uh, assist with the recovery of Allied aircrew shot down behind enemy lines. Obviously, as the Allies are advancing towards the east, crew could be shot down the other side of the Allies' line. So this is to help people back from the other side of the Allies' uh, line of advance. Um, and also, uh, during the war, some, had, some remained in, uh, in um, hiding, those who were shot down, and some just awaited liberation until the Allied lines advanced 
far enough forward. And some of these men, as I mentioned earlier, had been in hiding since, uh, since the fall of France, June 1940. Also, um, collection areas were established in France and Belgium and where people could be gathered together. One of the biggest of these was in an area called the Fretvel Forest near Chateau Dun in France. And as we talk, I'll be talking about him later, this was largely organised by Airy Neve. Escape and evasion and home runs. There's certainly a, a deal of mythology attached to escaping. It was, well, it's the duty of all POWs to do so. In reality, only a small percentage were actively involved. The vast majority sat out in the war and were far more preoccupied with the daily struggle for survival. That said, even if it came to nothing, escape planning did provide some relief from the monotony of POW life and an opportunity to strike back at the enemy. Escaping was not easy and required extensive preparation plus the commitment of manpower and resources. Documents had to be forged, civilian clothing made, other items could, would be obtained by bribing guards, stolen from within the camp or made by the prisoners themselves and whatever was to hand. MI9, Military Intelligence 9, supplied information via coded letters or covert wireless messages and concealed escape aids such as foreign banknotes, official stamps, forms, hacksaw blades, wire cutters, compasses and maps in parcels, sports equipments, ball games, gramophone records, etc. So there was still contact, MI9 was fulfilling its role, its contact between MI9 in, in the United Kingdom and POWs in many of the far-flung fl uh, camps in Germany, obviously over here and right over here off the map in uh, Poland. In reality, once in a permanent camp, the likelihood of making a successful escape was greatly diminished. In particular, for those in prisons in working camps, and this would be um, other ranks, officers were not required to work, strenuous and often lengthy days combined with inadequate food meant that most had neither the time nor the energy to get involved. Also, once outside the camp, uh, confines. There were hundreds of miles of enemy territory to cross before reaching the heavily guarded Swiss and Spanish borders. Um, other consideration, of course, include a sort of general lack of linguistic skills. You've got to make your way across uh, occupied Europe and your only language is English. And um, also, despite the best efforts of the uh, camp forgers, there was the ever-changing format of official German documentation, just regularly changed it. So you could probably forge something one month and a month later it's completely changed. So you're on the run with a forged document which doesn't look anything like the documents that are being produced at that particular time. But even if an escape attempt failed, it was hoped a serviceman on the run would divert enemy manpower to search parties and additional guard duties. Again, one of the priorities of MI9. As an example, in June 1943, 65 officers escaped via a tunnel at Offleg 7B Eichat in Bavaria. Although they were all recaptured over the next two weeks, it's estimated that tens of thousands of troops, police, home guard and other officials were redeployed uh, during the ensuing search. There was a huge de redeployment of manpower just looking for these people on the run. Escape equipment sent by MI9 did not always arrive. However, an inventory of articles dispatched to the relatively obscure Stalag 3D near Berlin gives an indication of the quantity sent. 
These included 9,500 German marks, 18,000 French francs, 72 special and 133 general maps, and 176 compasses. In particular, any parcel addressed to Captain Annan of the fictitious Licence Vichler Sports Association indicated that it contained escape aids. They've been forewarned, look out for these parcels with this name on it, they, they should contain escape aid. In addition, this particular camp's 13 coded letter writers sent 100 uh, messages, uh, hidden messages in letters to the War Office and received 70 in return. So there's communication between the people imprisoned in Germany and Poland back to England. I've seen stuff saying we think there's a V1 site down the road and things like that. So they're actually communicating with each other and they can ask MI9, can you send us a map of this? Can you send us a copy of this document, etc. So there's continuous um, communication between both, both sides. One of the more impudent schemes uh, was or organised uh, is the Imaginary Lancashire Penny Fund, which sent money and maps hidden in Christmas crackers directly to the camp commandant. And a company in letter requested that he hand them to the camp leader to help brighten their Christmas party. Apparently an estimated 50% of these got through. Escape organisations did not exist in every camp, nor were they always encouraged. In Stalag 4B, uh, Mulberg, near Dresden, the senior British officer, Major White, and a man of confidence who was intermediary between the protecting power, say, Switzerland and the camp authorities, Warrant Officer Meyer, were both very reluctant to support such plans. It seems they took the perhaps not unreasonable view that escape attempts would bring about reprisals and a loss of privileges for the remaining prisoners. Of the 142,000 British prisoners of war in German hands, only a tiny percentage of escapers made a home run. And as I said earlier, a home run is from within side of a camp or the camp, camp compound. The number I've never been able to establish, but I'd be surprised if it broke 100. I've got an idea, it's about 70 odd. So, you're now on the run. You're in German-occupied Europe. How would you get home? A series of civilian-run escape lines were established. The um, escape lines are often uh, resourced by MI9 and its various subdivisions. Um, they operated throughout Europe, all parts of Europe. I'm just showing you ones here in France. There were numerous others, however, numerous small operations, individuals, groups of people. Uh, many have left, left little or no trace. We know very little about them at all. Um, I'll briefly just look at the Comet Line, and apparently so named because of the speed with which escapers and evaders travelled down its line to freedom. So it's this line here from Brussels, down to Paris, down to here, over the Pyrenees, down to Madrid, on to Gibraltar. In June 1940, as we've seen, the situation in Europe was pretty bleak. Um, you know, over 300,000 servicemen have been evacuated via the beaches of Dunkirk and elsewhere along the French coast. The German army had taken over most of Western Europe and it seemed only a matter of time before they were gonna cross the English Channel. Despite these difficulties, many Belgians came forward to offer help, money and safe houses. 
The Comet line operated for a system mainly of young girl couriers. We're talking about 20-year-olds at that time. who took evaders between safe houses by train, bicycle and on foot. As part of the training, if you did, if you were unfortunate enough to land up in um, occupied Europe, are you on the run and you came in under the, into the hands of an escape organisation, all aircrew were required to carry three suitable photographs. And in my nine issued examples of what was suitable, this bloke here looks like he's just been in a fight, but <laughs> each country, as you can see, is a, this is sort of forward facing, this is at a slight angle. So you had three of these, you fall into the hands of an escape organisation who could, all do, uh, could, all, could uh, organise forged documents for you. But it would, there's obviously a right and a wrong type of photograph to have with you. MI9 also gave you instructions. Okay, if you're planning to break out, you're going to be on the run. This is how to quickly turn a uniform into a civilian walking out suit. So all these instructions are there, so you're pre-planning your breakout. These are some of the escape aids, such as uh, currency hidden in gramophone records. As I say, it's well known that very often people get over-enthusiastic and break every gramophone record in the hope there was something hidden in it. Things like compasses inside, embedded in a, a walnut. And this here, this map, as I say, this map contains, this cotton reel contains a map of Danzig. But if you notice appearance, if you remember its general appearance, you'll see later on when you talk in one of the case studies, there's a very similar map to this of Stettin, which two of the escapers I'm fairly sure must have used. Obviously they're reduced down in size, size put into the cotton reel. MI9 would also produce a series, these are from documents here, a series of forged passes. As I said, the nature, and, uh, nature of the passes was always changing, always being reproduced. Fortunately, the one we have an example of here is again for Stettin. They also produced headed note paper. So perhaps if you're travelling through Europe on a train exam on official business of a particular company, we've got lots of examples of these here. And should you need it, a forged German ration card as well. And this is for the city of Augsburg. So before going out on the, you know, before going out on the, on the run as it were from your camp, there was lots of help to do this from MI9 and other organisations and, and escape organisations within the camp. The Comet Line, as I said, was established in, um, by... In, in Belgium by really a group of, of young women. There was a chain of safe houses that ran um, from Brussels right down to the uh, Western Pyrenees. And the various collection points were set up in both Brussels and Paris. And in foothills of the Pyrenees, another collection of safe houses was set up in and around Bayonne. Mountain guides were then organized and routes chosen to take them in into neutral Spain. Once the line was established, in its three years of exist existence, it's estimated that the Comet line returned over 8,000 Allied aircrew. However, the price was high. In one incident alone, on the 20th of October 1943, eight members were executed by a German firing squad. Many other couriers and helpers within the um, escape line network throughout Europe were caught and and inevitably suffer terribly at the hands of the Gestapo or in concentration camps. Many never returned.
Um, treachery from within was not unknown, and um, an estimated 500 couriers and helpers died in this particular cause. At least 150 were believed to have been betrayed by the enigmatic Englishman called Harold Cole. Much debate about his actual role in the war still continues, who was associated with the um, comet line. Cole himself was um, continuously on the run. We have two MI5 files when he's actually interrogated here. And um, they couldn't seem to make head nor tail about what it was all about. Eventually, in January 1946, he was shot and killed in Paris by two gendarmes looking for deserters. As you will see later on, um, among the Second World War's many forgotten heroines were the Comet Lions, Aline Dumont, Elvira de Greff and André de Younger who were all awarded the George Medal in August 1945 for helping hundreds of Allied evaders. Also in late 1945, IS-9 Awards Bureau was established. Its purpose was to identify and recommend helpers for awards. As there was no appropriate medal, a new medal, the King's Medal for Courage in the Cause of Freedom, was uh, instituted by war Royal Warrant in August 1945. It was awarded to men and women, both military and civilian, for acts of courage entailing dangerous work in hazardous circumstances in the furtherance of the Allied cause. Others, though, simply received a certificate. It's a piece of paper which we'll, I'll show you an example of. And um, they were basically rubber stamp certificates thanking them for their help. Their help. In Europe, it had the, the kind of rubber stamp of their Chief Marshal, Sir Arthur Tedder, Field Marshal uh, Earl Alexander signed for the Mediterranean Theatre War and Lord Mountbatten for the Far East. Now she'll look at a few case studies which will hopefully be of interest. This one, particular one, came to mind because I saw a photograph of a crashed aeroplane on the internet. Then I went through the documents here and we have documentation for all six of the aircrew. And that's how much we've got on that one aeroplane and the six crew on board. Massive amount. This, this is about one particular Wellington bomber. One of the first people to travel down the Comet Line was Sergeant Jack Newton of 12 Squadron, a member of the crew of that particular bomber. On the night of the 5th of August 1941, his Wellington bomber took off from RAF Binbrook near Grims Grimsby to take part in a raid on the railway marshalling yards at Arken. In the words of the pilot, Flight Lieutenant Roy Langlois, we took off from Binbrook in a Wellington aircraft for 2200 hours on the 4th of August 1941 to attack the marshalling yards at Arken. On the way to the target, one of the engines became unserviceable, causing us to lose height progressively for the rest of the time we were airborne. On a return journey to base, after we had bombed the target, we were flying it 800 feet when we ran into flank, a flat barrage at Antwerp. This damaged the other engine and I forced landed at Dern near Antwerp Aerodrome at 0300 hours on the 5th of August. When the forced landing took place, there was an air raid at nearby Antwerp and the Germans stationed at Dern were in air raid shelters and unaware of the aircraft landing. So this provided time for the aircraft to be destroyed by firing a very pistol cartridge, they piled together a load of combustible material, fired a very pistol into it, and it burnt out the aircraft. 
This is a these are photographs of the Germans who came out in their shelter. They found the burnt-out aircraft on a runway, but where are the crew? There's no one there. And um, this is three of the crew I've managed to find photographs about. Um, the crew were, had been instructed, air crew were instructed to divide into smaller parties. So there were six air crew and they split into two groups of three. Um, Newton, Langlois and Copley, they were uh, soon approached by a Belgian-speaking civilian and some subsequently transferred through safe houses in Antwerp, Liège and Brussels where the three men then split up. Now alone, uh, Jack Newton on the, on the far left-hand side there, he came under the protection of the embryonic comet line. He was one of the first people to go down the comet line. And he was taken on a circuitous train journey around France before Basque smugglers guided his group over the Pyrenees into Spain. He then travelled onward to Bilbao, Madrid and Gibraltar from where he was flown home, arriving back on, on the 13th of July 1942. The remaining five evaders were all eventually captured. They spent the remainder of the war as POWs. Each has a story to tell, but perhaps the most extraordinary is that of pilot in the middle there, Ray Langwell. He and Copley were captured on the 2nd of October 1941 when their safe house was raided. Almost certainly they'd been betrayed. After passing through the interrogation centre Dulagluf near Hamburg and Stalagluf 1 on the Baltic coast, Langwar ended up at Stalagluf 3. In March 1944, he took part in the so-called Great Escape. He was number 60 on the list through the tunnel. And after emerging from the tunnel, his job was to wait in the nearby woods, keep a lookout and communicate by a signal rope when it was safe to exit from the tunnel. After number 80 had passed, he was free to go. By the time the 76th man was emerging, it was after five o'clock in the morning and daylight was fast breaking. A guard deviating from his usual patrol and purely by accident came across the tunnel. After being momentarily bewildered by his discovery, he raised the alarm. Lang Wa and three others nearby the tunnel mouth were, were captured. This apparent misfortune possibly saved his life, and as many of you know, the um, Gestapo shot 50 of the um, 76 that came out. So three got away, and um, 23 others. Some went back to Salagla Free, and others were dispersed around places like Sachsenhausen and some other camps. The other three crew members, who I don't have photos of, the uh, warrant officers Harold Burrell, Robert Porteous and John Warren, all three were captured um, in the same place. They're obviously in one group of three people on 13th of September 1941, a place called Saint Laurent in Vichy, France. They initially were sent to the series of forts um, in the south of France, one called Saint Hippolyte near Nîmes and were later transferred to Fort de la Rivière near Nice. In December 1942, they then transferred into the Italian POW camp system and they were all transferred to Camp Number 73 near Modena. After the Italian armistice, they were then sent to camps in Germany and were then not liberated until 1945. And it's a little bit back to front, I'm afraid, but those are two of the ladies. Remember when they, these are two of the uh, main operatives of the Comet escape line, and at the time they were in their 20s. And it's in one of the files here, particularly about Andre the Younger, 
there's a lot of debate about actually even giving her a medal, let alone what type of medal. It's, it's kind of petty bureaucracy at the War Office, it would seem to me. But eventually, these two ladies and a third lady all received the, the George Medal for their uh, bravery. This is the enigmatic, as I've called him, traitor Harold Cole. There's a book been written about him, I've not read it. No one quite knows what he was all about, but it's believed he was responsible obviously by betrayal for the deaths of 150 escape line helpers. And obviously there were numerous other people within organisations. These organisations were forever being infiltrated uh, by, by Germans, people purporting to be RAF crew, actually, actually German agents and so on. This is the medal that uh, we have a card index to these and we also have um, associated uh, paperwork dealing with the individuals and, in a sense, what they did to deserve this medal. And this is one of the TEDA certificates. It's pretty bland, in a sense. Stick someone's name in there. There's his signature. I'll say thanks very much. Off you go. Not a lot, I don't think, for, for, for the amount of bravery that a lot of these people showed. Right, we now move on to the infamous Colditz. This is Erin Neve, who some of you may remember was um, murdered by the IRA, uh, by car bomb. He was in fact the first British officer to escape from Colditz. It wasn't his first attempt from Colditz, and he did so in January 1942. Colditz Castle itself is located in Saxony. Saxony is right in the heart of Germany when you kind of look at a map. It's hundreds of miles from neutral countries. Its official name is Offlag, or, or you know, it's an officer's camp, 4C. It was almost believed by the Germans to be escape proof, and it, you can see there, it's standing on a high cliff promontory, and there's a river moulded just down the bottom there. And it's jutting out over the river. It's uh, seven, seven foot thick walls. It had an inner courtyard, and it's some 250 feet above uh, river level. And it you know, essentially appeared to be quite a formidable barrier. So a lot of persistent escapers and others were imprisoned in Colditz. However, you may be surprised to know that between 1941 and 1945, there were 100, some 170 escape attempts from there. Having visited there a few years ago, one of the more ingenious things is that there's a tunnel began, I believe it's in the old chapel there, and the French use of forks and spoons to dig into the rock. It's unbelievable. But, I mean, the, in 170 attempts, roughly. Uh, these obviously included tunnels. Most were detected by the kind of ever-vigilant security staff there, but 16, possibly 15 men made home runs. That is from within the castle or the castle perimeter. Another 15 escaped from outside the camp. And this was mostly during visits to the dentist or local hospital, whatever it may be. So in the total, you've got a number of something like about 31, 31, 32, depending on which sources you read. So in this particular case study, I'll have a look at, um, at Airy Neve. He was the first British officer to escape from Colditz. In August 1941, Neve made his first escape attempt from Colditz. He was dressed as a Gefreiter, a German corporal. His uniform was a Polish tunic daubed with scenery paint from the camp theatre. He went out at night 
and soon after passing the first century, a cry of Handy Hock rang out, and Neve realised to his horror that under the arc lights, his outfit appeared bright green instead of regulation-filled grey. And um, immediately after, he was surrounded by guards, he was bundled off to the cells, in the excitement being threatened with the death penalty for insulting the Wehrmacht. The Germans, particularly in Colditz, had a Dallin Escape Museum. This is um, an outfit, a French POW, dressed as a, a woman. I do believe that it nearly, it nearly came off, except the wristwatch, or watch the person was wearing, fell off. A German guard came over and said, here, oh, madam, here's your watch. Suddenly realised it was a bloke. There's all sorts of stuff. There were great ones for exhibiting the ingenuity of all these prisoners and ways of getting out. They did it also within a lot of the uh, Luftwaffe camps as well. And again, this is a whole collection, not a great photograph, but these are all fake German uniforms within the Germans' own escape museum. In a sense, it shows, I suppose, the German authorities how vigilant they were. No matter how ingenious the prisoners were, it was very, very difficult to get out. Um, however, that said, in January 1942, Neve made the first British home run from Colditz. This time, he was accompanied by the German-speaking Dutchman, Lieutenant Anthony Lutjen. Both were attired in more professionally made German officers' uniforms. Initially, they broke into the loft above the guardhouse. And how did they get there? This is um, a stage. This is the stage in Colditz. This is as it is now. Not a great deal has changed. They went under the stage, you can see there, knocked a hole in the ceiling. These are, this is a German photograph. Descended to the staircase, went down past the guard room. The hole has now been reopened, and this is what it looks like now. This is the actual hole they went through to descend down, down the staircase. Um, so they, they were in pretty, pretty well-made uniforms. It obviously seemed to fool the guards. Outside, in, in blizzard conditions, um, they then decide they then passed through unchallenged very, several security gates before going down into the castle's dried-up moat. Here they encountered an apparently suspicious soldier coming from the Mary quarters. He so, it was soon brought to attention by Lutyens, who snapped at him, why do you not salute? So obviously, so, oh, sorry, sir, and off they went on their way. After climbing over a wooden paling, they dropped into the POW's exercise park and finally, after several attempts, clambered over the icy 12-foot outer wall. With the help of forged documents, money obtained by selling goods to guards and posing as foreign workers during their, their journey across Europe, they made it to Switzerland in four days. Neve returned home via France, Spain and Gibraltar and was later recruited by MI9 using, and his code name in MI9 was Saturday. But as you've seen before, the, it was not un, unknown for the Germans to have their own escape museum just to show how good they were at capturing people. In the last of these studies, I shall look at the great escape free that got home. It's also got us known as AKA escape via a brothel. You'll hear why in a second. Stalag Luftfree is, um, was run by the Luftwaffe, essentially for the air crew. There were some army people in it, and um, it's located in Silesia. These are some uh, period war museum photographs of the compound. You can see they cleared all the forest away and uh, 
Again, it's thought to be relatively escape-proof. This is very, very typical of an actual POW block. During the Great, great Escape, as I've already said, there were 76 actually got through the tunnel. 50 were shot by the Gestapo. 23 either were returned to um, Stalingrad through other camps and some went to Saxonhausen. These are the three men who actually got away, though. You've got one Dutchman here and these two Norwegians either side here. Unfortunately, this chap in the middle was one of the 50 who was shot by the Gestapo. So these are the actual three that got back to this country. Um, the Dutchman, Bren van der Stork, I don't have time to go into his story, but he, he, he was obviously fairly fluent in ver several languages and with civilian assistance, probably another escape line called the Dutch Paris line, he got as far as Paris. And then his entire journey, when you think of it, is quite, quite massive because he'd gone from German-occupied, uh, you know, from Poland and to Gibraltar and he went via um, Holland, Belgium, France and Spain. So he made him as well all on his own, but with the help of civilian um, help, um, escape lines, he actually got home. The other two Norwegians are Jens Muller and Per Bergsland. They took a different route and they headed to the, to, for the port of Stettin to seek out a neutral ship and then passage on to Sweden. As uh, Muller reports in his um, escape evasion report, which we have here, uh, they got to Stettin. We walked about the town, visited a cinema and a beer hall, and after dusk went to an address which we had been given by the escape organisation. I don't know how they obtained it. A supplement to his escape um, report here, called an Appendix C, does give the address. This was a sort of French brothel bearing the in, in inscription Nurfer Auslander Deutschen Verboten, basically, you know. It's, you know, it's, it's only for foreigners, it's not for Germans, as it were. We knocked at the door and were approached by a Pole who was standing in the street and who asked us what we wanted. This was because the correct address of the prophet was number 17 and we were knocking at the door of number 16. I found out the street name is called um, Kleinodestrasse and I've not, not been able to find it on the map because the map's now all in Polish, so I've not been able to actually locate it. We do have a map of Stettin here. He asked if we had any black market wares for sale, and we asked him if he'd do of any Swedish sailors. He fetched one out of number 17, that being a brothel. We made our identity known, talking in Swedish, because obviously these are Norwegians, so they could converse quite easily with Swedish sailors. And he, told, and he told us his ship was leaving that night, and made a rendezvous to meet at 2200 hours outside the brothel. On this occasion, the ship sailed before they could board. Unfortunately, when they returned to the brothel the next day, two other Swedish sailors um, helped them stow away on the ship. And it's noted in one of their reports the ship was called the Saxon. He docked at Gothenburg on the 29th of March, just four days after the breakout from Stalingrad Free. Coincidentally, actually, the two of the three escapers involved in the wooden horse escape from Stalingrad Free which was in October 1943, again, both got away via Stettin. This is a map, this is an MI5 map, and if you remember, there was a map of being reduced in size and put inside a, a cotton reel, and this is one of Stettin, and I'd be fairly certain that a, a map like this had been re reduced in size and sent to Saligal Free, and was used by Bergson and Muller as part of their escape of anything. What's quite interesting is, uh, that the 
the appendices or appendix C's which, which come uh, in a separate file here. Each one of the people there kind of gives you an idea of the ingenuity and, and the escape aids they used to um, get out of, of um, Stalingrad free and make their way home. I mean, Van der Stoep's talking about various passes. I'm not certain how the spelling of these is correct, but um, and, these are, and, and, and the, the fact that some were supplied by a guard who'd been bribed, had various work certificates, change of work paper, Dutch and Belgian French identity cards. So this is him. And this man here, Muller, he converted his airman's tunic. You saw a photograph of where MI9 said, this is how you convert a tunic, like a civilian coat taking off the pockets and putting on pocket flat civilian buttons. And again, the escape organisation supplied me with turned-up trousers, a cloth cap, etc. And the escape organisation also supplied him with Reichsmarks. And again, with his, uh, his companion, he did something very similar. He had um, various passes and that. And he turned a Royal Marine uniform into... Uh, uh, you know, he used a Royal Marine uh, uniform and he wore an RAF greatcoat, etc. So they were quite ingenious in the things they did. Just to give you an idea, just to finally round things up so we're getting near to three o'clock, um, these are the record series here that you would look at it, um, for escape and evasion reports. Um, the main set are these here. There are things called appendix, or appendices C, which are in separate files and they go with those. Not all of these survive. Not all of those survive. These are the escape and evasion reports, which are um, the Western European area reports. And these are really essentially post-D-Day. And then, although I didn't have time to talk about it, there's a whole load here for Italy, those who went north after the Italian armistice in September 1943, and those who went south. A rough estimate is something like 13,000 documents. So briefly, just looking at those three sort of case studies, um, that's just three out of possibly hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, similar stories that are hidden there in the documents. So really, it, you know, there's, there are endless amounts of stories yet to be told. Anyway, thank you for your attention.